Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. All right, go for it. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. It's the one and only V, the Grill Economist, and we are here with the man of the hour, the one and only London Ball from TheSeriousReport.com. And folks, if you have not gone to The Serious Report, that is S-I-R-I-U-S, SeriousReport.com, you're missing out. Go over there, sign up for the membership, and for $4.75, for less than a price of a latte at Starbucks, you will get a daily briefing from the man himself, London Paul, every day, all day. You will get briefed on the geostrategic, the geopolitical, the geoeconomic, and the geosocial of the goings-on and musings of the world. Folks, it's valuable. I cannot tell you how – I can't emphatically tell you uh, how valuable this service that Paul provides is because you need to get a very clear, logical viewpoint on what's really going on. Not hype, not hyperbole, but raw reality. And that's what London Paul provides. And with that being said, London Paul, how are you, sir? Good. Well, it's good afternoon, actually. Not good morning for you. Yeah, well, I'm very well. How you, are you? Man? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah. I'm hanging in there, bro. How's everything with you? Yes, fine. Yeah, no problems. Just, well, apart from um, the sort of machinations of what's going on in the world. Um, and without laboring the point, I, increasingly I'm becoming more and more, I think, disturbed is the right word when it comes to U.S. foreign policy in whatever sphere of, the, be it the Ukraine, be it Syria, be it um, with with regards to to North Korea, but to a lesser extent, and and and, and then the, the sort of litany of nations that the U.S. appears to be meddling in, with regards to regime change. I mean, Venezuela is an obvious one. Nicaragua is another one, and and it's just like we've we've stepped back to you know twenty well thirty years to the Bush era. That's what it feels like. And ultimately, it does the U.S. absolutely no favors because when Trump took over, the you know Russia and China knew that his his mantra was, you know, I'm going to take a wrecking ball. To, well, he didn't use a wrecking ball, but you know, he wanted to drain the swamp. And yeah, and it's all built on trust. And the whole basis of the Trump administration was to rebuild the trust with nations such as China and Russia. And and, and further afield, and in that regard, the, the trust isn't there because they're sitting there going, well, Trump says one thing, and then his policies are doing exactly the opposite. They're doing everything to antagonize the Russians and the Chinese, and it's hugely detrimental to the U.S. because in the end, it needs that trust to be able to withstand the loss of the, of the dollar as the world's reserve currency and to be able to rebuild relationships with nations that in the future it's going to have to rely on to help it. And China and Russia are two examples of that. Now, many people will argue, well, I don't agree with this. The dollar's going to survive. You know, somehow the debt-ridden dollar is going to uh, survive. Well, its purchasing powers are fractions of what it was 100 years ago. It's a fraction. It's about 80% of what it was a matter of years ago. And we can see, in terms of the de-dollarization process, how it's accelerated. Now, some will argue, well, you know, this is part of this plan because Trump wants to, to cause the, the acceleration of the de-dollarization, which is going to uh, kill the, uh, the cabal in the process or you know, take a wrecking ball to them. And there is an argument that says fair enough in that regard. But in the process, you're damaging and destroying relationships at, at a rate of knots, which is, in the long term, is not going to help Trump in a post-cabal, post-dollar world. But to put it in context, when you look at the fact of how the de-dollarization process is taking effect, even in terms of swift transaction, the dollar now is below 
it's only a matter of a few percent higher than the euro. And of course, they say, well, the yuan's only a matter of about one and a half to two percent of those transactions. Well, it's pretty meaningless because a lot of Chinese trade now is and and, is, and other trade done in the, mul the multipolar world is now barter and barter is going to be an enormous feature of trade in the future and we've seen how russia and iran have had the oil for goods barter effectively and this is far more prevalent than people realize then of course there's the enormous sips uptake which is never included in the swift transactions so you may argue well the dollar still has nearly 40 percent but the reality is how much SIPs uptake is there. And so what is it in a percentage of actual global trade as opposed to just swift transactions? Petro Yuan, we said, was a slow burner. Well, it's been actually a bit of a quicker burner than I expected because it now has around 15% of the market in just four months. For this in context, it took Brent 20 years to reach that target. So where's the Petro Yuan going to be in six months, a year, 18 months, two years? No doubt bilateral trade in national currencies is now starting to accelerate at breakneck speed, as are currency swaps. And what do we see? I mean, it's been going on for since 2008. It's even still pretty high. You've got enormous amounts of gold that's heading east by the UK and the US. We're actually starting to now get confirmation of things we've discussed in the past that a lot of the loans that the Chinese are giving was actually denominated in yuan, not in dollars. Yeah, often the figures quoted in dollars, but it's absolutely not the case that, in fact, it was actually given in dollars. You've seen the enormous expansion of the Belt and Road Initiative, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And then you factor in how the, the relationship's been blossoming between the Chinese and the Russians. I mean, the Vostok 2018 military drill... A lot was made about um, the fact that the Chinese were there. So, oh, it's a further indication of, of this strengthening and blossoming ties between the two nations. No, it was an affirmation of just how strong their relations are. That's what it was telling the world, not this idea that it's still blossoming and there was all these teething problems. There isn't. Um, you've also got to take into account Russian resources. About 60% of Russia's not even been explored. It has off-scale amounts of resources, never mind oil and gas. And what's the one thing that even the Russians are now doing? As well as the Chinese, they're opening their markets up in regions to foreign investment. And who's going to try and capitalize on that? There's no doubt Europe's going to try and capitalize on that. And I think this is where you will see Germany start to, from a trade and commerce perspective, more and more, the integration, which is the Berlin-Moscow-Beijing axis. And the other thing is China's starting to become very obvious that they've made huge advancements in technology, not this idea that they just steal all this technology and from the US and, and every other nation, absolutely not the case. And it's just another indicative step forward to the fact that the dollar is dying and it and it's really dying from a lack of usage. It's not really that there's any attack on the dollar. It's just that if you're going to impose sanctions on us, you're going to impose tariffs on us, then we're going to look at alternatives and we're going to de-dollarize. And what's absolutely clear, and we said this from day one, the tariffs that Trump's imposed on the Chinese is killing the U.S. economy. It's not having any no, anywhere near the adverse effect on the Chinese. But, I mean, just look at the – and this – whole idea, I'm not so concerned that Trump's telling the, the American people how strong the economy is. This is electioneering. He's got to convince them. So when we come to the midterms, you know, hopefully he sails through because Trump is the only, the last chance the U.S. has got to achieve anything meaningful. And if he doesn't win the midterms, then it's very, very bleak as to how his government and administration is going to function for the next two years after that. So... Whilst it's nonsense about the strength of the U.S. economy, it's important that that, you know, in terms of the election, that he gets through that. The only problem he's got is at some point the realization is going to hit home and then it may be questionable whether he makes it through 2020. But let's not worry. We've got to get through 2018 and then 2019 and let's see what happens geopolitically and geoeconomically in the world. 
But but the reality is the U.S. economy is struggling very, very badly for all the reasons we've discussed before and we don't need to go into. But if people believe that the U.S. inflation rates are what it is, it's probably at 10%. U.S. unemployment's 23 24%. And you, know, you don't have 95 economically inactive people if your economy is that strong. And all the statistics even there's even people out there going well i just don't understand how we can have such low unemployment and yet some of the economic statistics don't bear this out well no because it's not reality and i think that's really in in essence really we're seeing literally on a week by week month by month basis that more and more nations are now having the strength and courage of convictions to go you know we're not going to be bullied anymore we're not going to be told we can't buy s400s from from um, from the Russians. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, as much as people can be critical of Erdogan, he's absolutely right that the lira was under attack by the Washington, and it's it's irrefutable. And it bought, it obviously revolves around the fact of uh, Turkey's support for with the Russians and the Iranians in Syria, also for the fact that they've effectively now in the process of de-dollarizing, and they wanted to buy S four hundreds from. From the Russians, and that is the, always the U.S. course of action: is if you don't agree with us, don't do what we tell you. We're going to sanction you, and 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 as I said at the, from the outset, just everything points to the fact that the U.S. foreign policy is as neocon as it was during the Bush era, and, and that's the worrying development. Is is you can we can argue that Trump's playing. Some 4D chess game. Well, I'm sorry with respect to U.S. foreign policy. That absolutely isn't the case. We said when Bolton took over, we were very concerned. And I think we have every justification for that because since he came in as the national security advisor, look what's happened to U.S. foreign policy. It's gone. It's veered from one crisis to the next in terms of its attitude and how it treats uh, other nations. I mean, as much as Syria is an obvious case in point, but... I mean, we can talk a bit about what's gone in Ukraine. I mean, there's an absolute failed nation that the US was behind um, removing someone who was democratically elected. And now they're doing everything to antagonize and, and provoke Ukraine into trying almost to start a war, be it in Donbass or in the Sea of Azov, which we could probably, I guess, is something uh, we can talk about, but I have very grave concerns about this whole foreign policy that the US is now adopting, and it certainly isn't some 4D chess game, it seems. And I, I talked to a number of people about this for quite a long time, and, and a few months ago, people were disagreeing with me, and now they're saying, yeah, we have very grave concerns that the Trump administration's foreign policy has been utterly hijacked. And the question is, can he regain control of it? And if he can't, then... That's a very worrying and disturbing development in terms of, well, if the neocons have control over foreign policy, and as I tweeted something about Trump's okay until he upsets the neocons uh, in terms of foreign policy decisions, say he suddenly says, I'm going to pull out of Syria, and there's a classic one. He says, I'm pulling out, and we have the Duma false flag chemical weapons attack a matter of days later. It's one thing if he upsets them with foreign policy, but if he starts to do things that upset them domestically or internally, then it becomes a major problem. And then you would really see how much control does Trump have over his administration. And people may say, I'm scaremongering. Well, I'm not. This is a reality. We've seen it. I mean, they, just look at the facts of what's happened in US foreign policy. I mean, the JCPOA was a great example where it was sold that somehow... This was to dent the cabal. We, we're trying to remove the cabal in Iran. This was a cabal-driven um, agreement. Well, if it was a cabal-driven agreement, why were the Russians and the Chinese still adamant it should be in place? Why is every nation adamant except the Israelis and the US? And also, it's a, the neocons for decades have been trying to remove the Tehran government through sanctions. That's irrefutable. Nothing's changing, yet it was suddenly sold Oh, well, it's Trump, so it's a very different story. Frankly, Trump's attitude towards Iran and the JCPOA is, is hugely regrettable and is a very serious, serious error of judgment. And the way I say it was sold is I have people saying to me, oh, 
it's not a problem because they're just trying to get rid of the cabal out of Iran. I said, well, which cabal? There is no cabal in Iran. Yes, there are problems in Iran internally and there is a need for reform. No one's going to dispute that. But Iran doesn't have Western cabal in its government. And I think the biggest mistake that Trump made was he was like, well, this is the JCPOA. It was an Obama administration policy. Oh, right, we're going to have to get rid of it at all costs. And it was always sold like that. It was a complete failure. It wasn't a failure. It, was, it wasn't necessarily ideal, but it did a lot to stabilize the Middle East. Fortunately, it's, whole, it's holding together still. It remains to be seen if it holds, you know, indefinitely or is there going to be some point when Iran's going to walk away from it but I think there's sufficient economic desire particularly the Russians and the Chinese and also the EU to keep it going but there are good reasons for this it's not some cabal reason for keeping it going because as we said Russia and China are not cabal so why would they be trying to implement a cabal policy and when I said that to people they were it was like this blank expression oh well I hadn't quite thought of it like that well these are the kind of things that people need to think about. Don't just take it on face value because the Trump administration tells you something about Syria or tells you something about Ukraine. I mean, it, it's like the, the risk of another false flag chemical weapons attack. That's not a 4D chess game. That's a serious problem that could blow up into a major hot war in the middle, in the Mediterranean, in the Middle East. How in, in any capacity is that beneficial to removing the cabal and, and draining the swamp. It absolutely isn't. It just furthers their ambition and aim to cause and wreak havoc in the Middle East, which is precisely why they're responsible for the invasion of Syria in the first place and the attempt to overthrow Assad. You know, we see the U.S., Paul, and we see this in, in Syria. You know, this morning, CJ and I was talking about it. You know, here we are, the United States Marines are actually training, hundreds of Marines training side-by-side side with, quote-unquote, the rebels. And I love how they use these nice words, rebels. For what? Al-Qaeda. I like how they're using kinetic action instead of war. And so this is what's happening on the anniversary of 9-11. Here is the United States Marine Corps training and training with... Al Qaeda, in, in 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 as a show of force against the Russians, and again, so the, again, the U.S. is not working as a willing participant to de-escalate the situation, but they're working to 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 escalate the situation, and we see this in the Ukraine as well. A billion dollars spent arming the Ukrainians to create what more havoc, more provocations, anywhere in the world, apart from. North Korea, and the verdict is still out on that one. Where the heck are we working to de-escalate? Where are we working as a partner for peace without any sort of ulterior motive? I don't see it, Paul. No, absolutely not. And I made a tweet, and I said the following. I said, it's truly staggering that Washington expects the world to believe that Assad, who is on the verge of ending the war in Syria, decides to gas his own people who are largely highly supportive of him, whilst U.S. coalition partners are threatening to bomb his country. And, and, that, and for me, it's as simple as that. And I'm absolutely staggered that anybody believes it's anything to the contrary. But sadly, there's too many people, and it's not just in the U.S., but also in the U.K., who buy this utter nonsense. And you make the Ukraines a very good point because... There's something, um, <clears throat> CJ, we had a bit of a chat, you know, as things would you like to discuss? And he, he raised a very good point, which is that the Ukraine's got this military presence in the Azov Sea. Now, its National Security and Defense Council agreed to take these steps to what they term boost the country's combat capabilities in the area. And of course, traditionally since 2003, Russia and Ukraine have enjoyed this freedom of use of this Sea of Azov. And because they regard them as internal waters of both Ukraine and Russia, but now Ukraine doesn't want to recognize Russia's rights. And the Ukraine authorities have insisted on the right to detain any ships traveling to or from Crimea without Kiev's permission. And they've called for the imposition of international sanctions against Russian Black Sea ports. 
calling it the blockade of the Sea of Azov. Now, it's already <coughs> caused some um, serious um, incidents back in the spring where they detained ships and searched them. Um, they interrogated crew members that were supposed to have uh, beaten them up. They violated international agreements. And only recently a tanker was detained in the Ukrainian port of Kherson. And what have we seen with regards to this? We haven't seen the U.S. saying, hang on a minute, Ukraine, what the hell are you doing? No, it's taken a deliberately provocative stance, the State Department actually urging Ukraine to, to be confrontational. It's effectively goading Ukraine into taking military action, including the use of warships of NATO's standing forces to protect its shipping lanes, even talking of mining the Azov Sea or using fast-moving attack vessels to encircle Russian Navy assets. The American Foreign Policy Council believes that the U.S. administration should send anti-ship missiles as well as a viable launch platform and targeting system. And the Atlantic Council are a think tank that advises this the State Department and enjoys enjoys influence over them about shaping U.S. foreign policy. Published these findings. The Institute of World Policy called for fast track shipments to Ukraine of anti shipment missiles, enabling it to attack Russian vessels. And the idea of providing Ukraine with Coast Guard ships also is under consideration by the U.S. government. And Kurt Volker who's the U.S. Special Representative for Ukrainian Negotiations. Well, <clears throat> negotiating what, I'd like to know, stated the U.S. administration is ready to expand arms supplies to Ukraine in order to build up the country's naval and air defense forces. Now, how exactly is that de-escalating tension? How exactly is that playing into this idea that, you know, the Russians and, and, and Trump or Putin and Trump are, playing some game to, to circumvent the cabal. No, this is antagonistic. It's deeply uh, angered the Russians. It's also creating potentially a risk of a hot war developing in that region. I mean, we can't rule it out. I'm not saying it will happen. And what have we seen that the US is, uh, Poroshenko has done? He's wrecked the economy. It's financially collapsed. The corruption is on a level that beggars belief. And, you know, the only option the U.S. administration is considering is providing Ukraine with arms to fight Russia in Donbass and in the Sea of Azov and encouraging Kia to escalate the tensions. Now, if that's not classic neocon tactics, I don't know what is. And that is why I'm deeply disturbed by developments where I've not seen Kurt Volker do anything to de-escalate tensions. At no point has he sat down with Ukraine and said, look, I'm terribly sorry, but you have failed to abide by the Minsk Accords. Every other nation has. Everyone is trying to de-escalate tensions and reduce the problem. You've done nothing. No, they're just antagonizing the situation and effectively using Ukraine as a pawn because it borders Russia. And I'm sorry to say, but from, from Trump's perspective, it should be pretty obvious what's going on. But either, for whatever reason, he's incapable of doing anything about it. And I think the truth is, if he stood up and said, I'm sorry, we're not tolerating this. We're, we're not helping Ukraine anymore. We're going to stop aid to Ukraine. We're not providing any more missiles. And by the way, we're going to de-escalate the, the uh, matters with Russia with regards to Ukraine. And by the way, Kiev, make sure you abide by the Minsk Accords. I think the reaction would be pretty hostile internally. And I think that's the problem he's up against. How much control does he actually have over foreign policy? And by extension, maybe even internal policy, it's hard to say. But at the moment, I'm not seeing any evidence from a foreign policy perspective. I think uh, that, the foreign that he policy has perspective, Paul, has been abysmal. It's been pretty pretty bad. It's 50-50, it's, it's number one. Not even 50-50, maybe a 10% chance. And then look internally. Look internally. Who, who showed up for work today? At the Justice Department, who had coffee at the taxpayers' expense? Who had donuts at the taxpayers' expense? Who had lunch at the ta Bruce Orr is still there. Well, the won't fire him, and then and then the uh, all the Q anon pundits are out there saying it's four D chess, V. You don't understand. It's four D chess. And meanwhile, Paul, you and I have been calling this out. This is not four D chess or three D chess. This is 
This is one-dimensional Connect Four. It's pretty straightforward. Well, yeah, and the, the problem is, I've, I've said all along, I'll judge Sessions by what he does, not what I think he should do, or by what I hope he does. He has to be judged by what he does, and he's running out of time rapidly to do the things you'd expect the Attorney General to do. And, I mean, and the obvious thing is, well, okay, so he's recruited himself from, from the whole Russiagate thing. Well, if he hadn't done that, and he never stood as Attorney General, we'd never have spoken about Mueller investigation, which has hamstrung the Trump administration, not just domestically, but in terms of foreign policy, and particularly with regards to Russia in the process, such now that we have this foaming at the mouth attitude that, you know, if someone blinks wrong in the world, it's the Russians. I mean, and it's absolutely farcical. And sadly, there's too many Trump supporters who are buying this. Um, I mean, yeah, the Democrats will jump on the bandwagon and love this because it deflects the, the scrutiny away from where the whole Russia Gate investigation should be, which, re which revolves around the DNC, revolves around dubious um, activities going on to do with uranium one and the list goes on and on and on which we've discussed many times before but you're absolutely right until sessions delivers and he's running out of time if he doesn't deliver i'm sorry he's an abysmal failure as an attorney general and he's not doing the job he should be doing and at the end of the day at some point he's going to have to go well actually we're going to have to reopen the the um investigation into into the clinton email so we're going to have to uh, re uh, open investigations into countless people and at the moment as you say uh, what's changed and i i made a comment the other day on on twitter saying it's all well and good thing you know removing low-hanging fruit but it doesn't deal with the fundamental problem of the institutions that run the beltway run run uh, washington if you don't tackle the fundamental root cause of the problem, removing individuals does nothing because you can take people out of the FBI, you can take people out of the Department of Justice, you can take people out of the US Treasury or anywhere else you want, but it doesn't fundamentally change the, the, the fact that the policies that these institutions implement just carry on in perpetuity. So I'm not interested in, in seeing low-hanging fruit removed as though it's some great big political... Um, a game or big political sort of chess piece move and, and it's a huge victory for for freedom i don't see it at all i see it as a meaningless step that doesn't achieve anything until we see the very heart of these the corruption that exists in western governments let's not just pick on washington we can talk about london paris berlin and everywhere else for that matter till you actually see a dagger to the heart and and i use the, the seven-headed hydra approach you have to cut it off at the stem of the net you can't just chop an ear off one of the heads and think you've achieved anything because nothing changes. And thus far, for all the promise, we haven't seen anything delivered. And I'm not interested in timescales. People can tell me it's this month, next month, last month or six months ago. It's irrelevant. Until it actually happens, as far as I'm concerned, I, I'll believe it when I see it. And I'm optimistic in the end we will see things. But at the moment, it's not happening and I think too many people have become very blasé, believing that there's this great big plan that's unfolding and don't worry about it, everything's okay. Well, I'm seeing no evidence of it. I'm also very concerned when I see pictures where, was it, Melania Trump's wearing a dress and someone's photoshopped the Q letter on it and everyone's, oh, look, Melania Trump's wearing a dress with Q on. Well, actually, it wasn't. It was photoshopped. It never had the letter Q on it. And when you see these kind of things, it's hugely damaging to, to um, people's understanding of the reality of what's unfolding. And in fact, if anything, you know, whatever your belief about the Q, Q is, it's damaging to that as well, because people are going to go, hang on, there's people, you know, suggesting that, you know, this is reality when in fact it wasn't. So I have concerns about that. But at the end of the day, the proof of the pudding's in, in delivering and, we have to start to see real evidence that changes are happening, that the swamp's being drained. And I particularly will focus on Sessions because I think he has a huge responsibility. And it's about time he pulled his finger out and made these changes because I suspect if he doesn't, then after the midterm, I wouldn't be surprised if Trump removes him from office.
because he is totally ineffectual. Now is not the time to do it. You don't want to start seeing Head's role at this point in time. But at some point, if he doesn't start to deliver, then he's going to have to go. And there's been some pretty harsh criticism from Trump on Twitter with regards to Session, which seems to be largely forgotten. And, and then it's the idea, oh, well, this is just a pretend war of words that, you know, everything's fine. Well, at what point do we start to go, hang on, there's all these events happening. This is the reality of it. But let's ignore it and pretend it's some 4D chess game. Well, I'm sorry, you have to see what's actually been undertaken, what's actually coming about as a result of it, rather than trying to infer there's some angle to it that none of us are seeing. I mean, I had people telling me it was a 4D chess game. When the US hit missiles hit Duma, okay, most of them failed for a false flag chemical weapons attack. But my question to them was, how does this benefit draining the swamp? How is this helping to remove the cabal? It doesn't in any way, shape or form. And there's another great example, the white helmets. The US stopped funding them and then suddenly Trump gives them $6.6 .6 million more funding. Who's removing the white helmets out of southern Syria? The US were involved and the Israelis. Then we see that the, the, the white helmets have turned up in northern Syria in the vicinity of Idlib, where there's all the risk of this false flag chemical weapons attack. Now, they had long enough to look at this and say, hang on, what, is, what are the white helmets actually doing? Should we continue funding it? And I'll give some credit to the Netherlands government who've actually now said we're not funding them anymore. They've stopped funding them. And, that, and you know, kudos to them for doing so. But it's, I was pleased when the Trump administration sat back and said, hang on, we're not funding them. And then all of a sudden, they're writing them on the check for six and a half or $6.6 .6 million. And I'm, and I'm supposed to buy that this is some kind of game or some kind of 4D chess move. No, they're funding an organization who has very questionable presence inside Syria from multiple sources that is backed up by solid, hard evidence. You can't dress this up. And I think people need to stop dressing this up and trying to believe that it's something it isn't. It's another disturbing development in keeping with far too many disturbing developments in the Trump administration. And you're seeing some of these inconsistencies uh, feathering yawn up and down all over. Uh, Paul, the situation here also, is one of the things I want to touch base with you on, is the ever-broadening and dangerous situation in Syria, the situation that uh, at any day can spiral. Why don't you paint for us how dangerous this situation is? Because I think, I think people are going to think that this time again, there's going to be some cruise missiles that are going to be fired off and uh, the Russians are going to sit idly by and do nothing. Well, let, let's, let's take it one step at a time. I mean, this is another example of a worrying development with the, with the Trump administration because we had, we always said, look, at some point, you can guarantee there's going to be another attempt at a false flag chemical weapons attack. We said that after Duma. It took until we got to Idlib, which is really the last strong hold for Daesh, Al-Qaeda, whatever you want to call it. Now, the thing that concerned me most is that the Russians went to the Americans and said, look, we have clear, unequivocal evidence that this is a staged chemical weapons attack. It's designed to frame the Assad government. It's got nothing to do with Assad. And the US simply weren't interested in looking at this. Now, if I was Trump, I'd be saying, hang on a minute. I'm supposed to have this strong relationship with Putin. And this is what everyone keeps being, oh, no, there's this great strong relationship with Putin and, and, uh, and Trump. Well, clearly that relationship isn't that strong because effectively via Putin, the Russians presented this or tried to present this evidence and that Washington dismissed it and said it was nonsense and, and then started up in the ante, not only saying, well, if this chemical weapons attack happens, we're going to launch a, you know, a strike on, on uh, SAD's target. They went as far as almost saying at one point, well, we'll just take a preemptive strike because we believe he's going to launch this chemical weapons attack. Oh, and by the way, we might just target the Russians and the Iranians in the process. I mean, this is the kind of madness talk that you just, you, you know, it's taking it up to a whole new level. It was bad enough in Duma. It was bad enough the year before um, when they struck the airbase, which the names slipped my mind for a second. But anyway, the point is that they took it to another level. 
Now, yeah, the reality is, is if this was to happen, then the Russians last time warned the US that they're not going to tolerate this kind of behavior anymore. Now, the risk is if the US then decides to launch missile attacks on, the, on Assad, if they happen to strike Russian and Iranian targets or try to in the process, okay, it doesn't matter whether the fact that the Russians can shoot the majority out of the sky. The risk is the, the Russians have a huge uh, naval presence in the Mediterranean. So do the Chinese. I've said this before, but China does. It's not well known, but China has a presence there. And they're facing off against the US and NATO partners. Now, are we going to see a hot war in, in the, the Middle East? Uh, sorry, in the Mediterranean? Because if we do, the US fleet will be sunk out into oblivion. And the worst part could be is it could actually happen where, and this people will say this is, this is, I'm sorry, it's nonsense what you'll say, but it isn't nonsense because Russian military technology is far in advance. The Russians could, could in effectively, you could see the entire U.S. Uh, Navy sunk without Russia striking a single missile at them. And if you don't believe that, look at the U.S. Donald Cup where they froze all the electronics. The Russians have technology so far ahead of the U.S., it's 75 years ahead. Now, to put that in context, military progression in terms of technology is not linear. So even if we took it back linearly, we're talking World War II. But in reality, the Russian technology now is like the U.S. having World War I technology compared to the Russian, and maybe even further back than that. That's how the, the chasm of difference. And people will say, I'm sorry, that's absolute nonsense, and I don't agree with you. Well, it doesn't matter. Don't agree with me, but that's the reality. So, yes, it's absolutely crassly foolish and stupid for the U.S. to even consider this as an option. And again, I think it's the U.S. doesn't believe that the Russians will will respond that way. They think, oh, in the end, they'll just back off and we can do precisely what we want. But again, this is another classic neocon tactic. And it's and it's escalating things in Syria to a totally different level. I mean, I'm wholly critical of the Obama administration, who actually, of course, were responsible for why this whole Syrian um, civil war, as they call it, but it isn't. The, the war in Syria started in 2011. But the point is, when the US had an opportunity in 2013 to, to launch missile attacks, the, Trump, uh, the Obama administration backed off and didn't do so. Well, we've seen twice the Trump administration do it. And are they seriously going to do it a third time? On the basis of what anyone knows full well, it's it's a false flag chemical weapons attack for precisely the reason I said Assad has zero reason to do so. He has the support of his people. He's on the verge of winning the war. And let's be honest, if you were sat there going, well, I'm achieving all these objectives. I know I'll just do something reckless to kill my own people and give the U.S. the, the authority to come and bomb my country in, in any which way how they like is absolute insanity. So therefore, everyone knows, except seemingly people in the West don't seem to understand this because they believe the nonsensical propaganda that's come out. But certainly, yeah, Syria is a major problem. It's a major threat, and no one should underestimate the severity of the outcome. Now, okay, it's the 17th of September, and thus far, nothing's materialized, but I, you can't rule out the fact that uh, the neocons are that desperate and they're just war hungry. And that's it. They, they're just desperate for a war anywhere in the world. They can start a war. They'd love to start a war. And, it, and so unless everyone acquiesces and does exactly what they want, when they want, how they want. And, you know, look back to the Bush administration and the Bush era, particularly um, sort of even daddy Bush era. And you saw the way people then seem to have forgotten what's the difference in the, in the foreign policy doctrine there. And even during, obviously, the <laughs> we all know what happened as a result of 9-11 uh, and this so-called bogus war on terror and all the things that happened. I mean, tell me what's different. There is absolutely nothing different. The only difference this time is the Russians' military technology is light years ahead. China's economically a lot stronger. And the world collectively is turning is now turning its back on the U.S., namely the U.S. dollar. 
and the utter distrust across the world is meaning that the neocons position is infinitely weaker in one sense but it doesn't make it's like any caged animal it there's a risk it'll lash out and we should never underestimate the severity of it and you know people need to start questioning why is the trump administration prepared to risk this and ultimately trump has to take you know responsibility and say hang on why are we doing this because i don't believe that everybody inside the pentagon and everyone inside his administration is all gung-ho and wanting a war because we know full well matt is said prior to the doom of missile attack he told Trump, don't go, don't launch any missile attacks. Don't do this. It's reckless and you shouldn't even consider it. And he plowed ahead and did it. So he ignores Mattis. And a lot of people will criticize Mattis and level a lot of, uh, I mean, he's been called Mad Dog and everything else and the sun. But actually, he seems to be a very level headed individual with regards to US foreign policy. And he's trying to temper the risk that there's such an attack. Um, could you know could cause and I and I don't doubt that a similar conversations probably happened between Mattis and Trump again with regards to this the threat and saying well hang on we've had this before twice and actually it was the Shiretta base while well, it came back into my head in was it twenty seventeen but the point is I mean you can you can say to Trump well okay it's forgivable for it to happen twice but to happen the risk I mean if it happens three times I'm sorry it's it's totally unforgivable because you can't fall for the same nonsense three times when it's absolutely obvious to anyone who thinks for 30 seconds that Assad has zero reason. And the people who have all the reason to want to, to um, invoke a false flag chemical weapons attack is precisely Daesh. Oh, and the rebels <laughs> and whatever else you want to call them because they're the ones who are put in there by the cabal to overthrow Assad, have regime change and put the you know, puppet Syrian government in. They're the ones who are desperate to keep this war going, the neocon, and Al-Qaeda are just there, or Daesh are their proxies to do exactly that. So, yeah, that's why it's that serious. Paul, let's talk about switching gears real quick. The new Russian energy rival to Gazprom. Because while we're out there just, you know, ruining and making muck of things, the rest of the world, the rest of the productive world, it seems, is to be, is, is, is going forward, coming out with innovations and moving beyond this childishness. Go for it. Yeah, well, everyone, I mean, you've obviously got Rosneft, but then you've got Gazprom, who's the biggest natural gas producer in the world. And it kind of, I remember, yeah, it's, int- it's glad you sort of raised this point, because I, was looking at this a while ago and I was quite surprised that, you know, in, in essence, there's a company called Novatech who it really are involved in liquid natural gas LNG. And what's interesting is that in 2008, there were the difference between the market caps was over 340 billion. Now they're both valued around 50 billion, which shows Novatech's market capitalization's gone through the roof relatively and Gazprom's is collapsed. Now, people will argue, well, how is that possible? Because Gazprom's got vast natural gas reserves and they are absolutely enormous and, it, and it's multiple times bigger than Novatex. But, of course, it's a state-run company and therefore it has to divest some of its profits. And also, you have to bear in mind that it's responsible for building enormous infrastructure, which is hugely costly. And it's done an enormous amount of infrastructure building. So it's not surprising that Gazprom's market capitalizations decrease. But what's Novatech done? It's very cleverly found a niche in the liquefied natural gas business. Um, it's controlled by some uh, very powerful Russians, but it's co-owned actually by Francis Total, which is interesting. And no doubt Gazprom has burned by, by being state-owned. You know, it, it spends a huge amount, not just on domestic, but international gas pipelines. But what's Novatech, Novatech done? It's actually very cleverly. It started its first LNG plant last year, and it was on time and in budget. And it's actually you know, developing the country's Arctic gas reserves, and it's got very strong ties with the French Total and also China. 
non-surprisingly, the company's uh, directors were sanctioned by the U.S. in the process. No surprise there. Were but the the incredible thing is is comes back to this thing where Trump thinks that the U.S. is going to steamroll Europe and take over the LNG market. Well, what he fails to realize is why is European nations going to spend 30, 40, 50% more on LNG import than they can get from the Russians? And Novatex is a great example of a company that I think effectively they could have made it part of Gazprom didn't and said, okay, we can spin this off. It'd be far more profitable. LNG is a lot more less expensive in terms of infrastructure development. And it's been highly profitable, a very successful business. And yeah, it's another example of a Russian company that's come from relative obscurity in, in a very short space of time and is now a very dominant player in the Russian energy sector, along with Rosneft and, of course, Gazprom in the process. But, yeah, it's no surprise, but it's, an, it's another example of why this folly that the U.S. can compete with the Russians in terms of energy. I mean, it's absolutely incredible that you've heard the U.S. making reference to the fact of how dare the Russians weaponize energy or use energy uh, as some form of economic weapon against nations, which they haven't done. Whereas, uh, forgive me if I'm incorrect about this, but what the hell have the U.S. been doing with the dollar for decades? Something that they, they, they've completely forgotten as though, in fact, no, we haven't done anything of the sort. We've, we've used the dollar to, to benefit the world and look at all the success stories of what the dollar's done for nations across the world. But it's that staggering level of arrogance and ignorance that it, it, it never ceases to, to amaze me, but in one sense. But it's ultimately the very undoing of the U.S. in the process because they have this level of arrogance that somehow do as we say, not as we do. And it is arrogance. It's arrogance that's only derived when you've been the... Uh you know, petrodollar for X amount of decades, and you've been the world reserve currency for X amount of de decades, and you've been the sole superpower for X amount of decades. You know, uh, hubris is something that often goes and uh, poisons the mind of a nation. And that's where we are today, Paul, where we're uh, overestimating our capabilities and, under, and, under, and underestimating our challenges. Yeah, and Iran's a great example of that because... Everybody's pointing out to the U.S. Look, you may have, you maybe have disagreements with Tehran. You may be unhappy about their presence in Syria, although it's pretty benign, and really being rattled by the Israelis into believing this. And and there's no doubt that that's exactly what's kind of fermented um, Trump's view of the Iranians, and hence why he walked away from the JCPOA. But of course, coming up in November, we're early November the fourth. Sanctions are due to be reimposed on Iran's oil industry. You know, it's the second round of sanctions. Now, there's all this belief it's going to severely impact Iran's oil industry and exports, and there's going to be this massive decline in production. And you know, the U.S. isn't, isn't um, taken into consideration that the nations are already finding ways to get around the problem, and they will carry on being supplied by, by Iran for their imports. And China has already increased their um, oil imports by 600,000 barrels of oil per day. But what's the U.S. trying to do? It wants nations like Saudi Arabia and Russia to increase oil production. So on the one hand, it's telling the, the Russians who it's sanctioning to oblivion. I mean, I don't think there's anything left in Russia to sanction by the Americans. But they're doing this. And then in the next breath saying, oh, but please take up the slack by, uh, created by Iranian sanctions. So, you know, the oil price doesn't go up too high, which is going to be damaging to our economy. So, Russia, you know, we're going to screw you over sanctions. We're going to threaten to bomb you in Syria and the Iranians. Uh, you, you, we don't listen to you, anything you say regarding Iran or the JCPOA, but, but please help us with regards to the oil price. And the U.S. Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, met in Moscow with his Russian counterpart and they, they, they all said, you know, I thought, oh, well, maybe there's some hope. Maybe, you know, maybe there's some common sense will prevail as a result of this meeting. And they said, you know, they discussed ways in which the U.S. and Russia could, you know, uh, work together to ensure world energy market stability. 
you know, transparency, sustainability, it was all hot air because, in essence, what does the U.S. say? Well, we're insisting on sanctions on Iranian oil. Oh, by the way, we're continuing to object to the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. And we are still thinking about imposing sanctions on any nation who is part of that project or a recipient of gas or anything else for that matter. And, you know, and they expect the Russians to sit there and go, OK, well, this is this is great that we're talking about market stability and sustainability and transparency. Meanwhile, you're dictating to us, telling us uh, precisely what we should do and shouldn't do. And then and then Perry states, well, you know, the US, we're we're quite you know happy to have competition with Russia in energy markets across Europe, Asia and elsewhere. They're so happy with the competition, they're threatening to sanction Nord Stream 2. That's how much they regard it as competition. And then, they, as they say, they say Moscow can no longer use energy as an economic weapon. Well, it never has. The problem the U.S. won't understand or face is that Russian gas production and LNG is considerably cheaper. I mean, it's a bit like you and I going to, to the local shopping mall and going in one store and someone saying, well, that costs $30 and... You go to the next one and they say it's 15 and you go, I'm terribly sorry, you can't buy it for a cheaper price. If you buy it for 15, we're going to sanction you. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. And and they think that the US is now in this position to offer all these alternative sources of supply without actually realizing there's no economic benefit to nations to do so. This is a huge problem. And again, it's just a simple lack of understanding. You can't bully nations on the one hand and then demand that they cooperate with you in the next. Because, frankly, why would Russia want to bother to cooperate with the US? And this, again, prove, disproves this idea that there's this strong relationship between the Trump administration and, and Putin. There might be the, the you know, a fledgling relationship between Trump himself and Putin, where Trump and Putin understands what Trump's mandate was when he was elected. But then he's going to look at situations like this and go, well, you're the, you know, the commander in chief. You're the president. You're ultimately not telling Perry when he comes to these negotiations, say, excuse me, you're not going to threaten sanctions over Nord Stream 2. We're not going to sanction Iranian oil and try and cripple the market for Iran. And in the next breath, expect all these other nations to prop the market up just so it benefits the U.S. in the process. And this is this is the problem that, that Moscow has and Beijing has. And I'm sorry, but you have to deal with what, what's put before you. And, you know, the trade war, effectively what it is now, is another case in point. China had no intention of doing so, but there comes a point where, you know, the U.S. aren't making any headway. China's effectively now got to the point where they're saying these, these talks with regards to reaching, you know, an end to the M and the impasse between, um, sorry, the impasse between, uh, you know, the Russians, uh, sorry, the Chinese and the US with regards to trade, they know that it's never going to work. So just, there's no point trying. And the US's attitude is, well, you haven't agreed to this. So we're just going to put more and more sanctions on you. I mean, in the end, they're going to run, the US itself is going to run out of things it can sanction in China. Rather like it's basically run out of anything it left to, to sanction the Russians over. And that's the other thing, the whole scripple debacle. The U.S. used it as a as immediately went, oh, I know, we're just going to um, put more sanctions on you. And actually, by the way, we want unfettered access to, to to check that you haven't got any chemical weapons, even though the OPCW confirmed that Russia has no chemical weapons, whilst the U.S. forgets to tell the world, actually, we never signed up to the convention and we still have them ourselves. And I'm not saying there's any tie-up between what happened with the scribbles and what happened. Uh, with regards to chemical weapons or whatever was used. But the point is, again, you just cannot speak to nations like this and expect them to listen and take you seriously. And as I said, prior to even Trump being elected, but it's actually getting worse. Is The US turn up in summit, they speak at the UN or anywhere else. Everyone listens to what they said, kind of nods their head. And when they walk out of the room, they'll go, OK, so what are we actually going to do now? Because no one's listening to the U.S. anymore. No one's interested in taking any note of them because, from their perspective, they're not seeing any evidence that the U.S. wants to meet anyone halfway, that they want to stabilize and normalize relations with other, with other countries and bring an end 
conflicts across the world. I mean, Yemen's another example. Everyone knows the humanitarian crisis that's being caused in Yemen by the Saudis, yet the U.S. is complicit in helping to refuel Saudi aircraft. They've got special forces inside Yemen working with the Saudis. Again, it's another harebrained foreign policy decision. And unfortunately, it, it's stacking up and up. And every time you know, there was a spell where we thought, yeah, Trump was keen to, to bring an end to the, the nonsense in Ukraine. He was keen to get out of Syria. I don't doubt on, on a level Trump wants to do all this, but he's incapable of doing that. And the fact he's incapable means as a president, he's lost control of his foreign policy. And we had a spell where it was obvious he'd lost control of his presidency. He regained it. But again, it seems like he's lost control of his presidency. And there's nothing that convinces me to the contrary because I'm not seeing any evidence that says we're having a major change in U.S. foreign policy. We're actually, you know, Sessions is doing something internally within the U.S. We're actually starting to see people who should no longer be employed in whatever department they're in still working there. And also the idea, you know, there's people who have security clearance that, frankly, shouldn't have security clearance anymore. That, that should be stopped. Why aren't these things happening? Why aren't they reopening investigations into the Clinton email server? And why is Sessions simply not doing anything as an attorney generally should do? And until I see anything to the contrary, then I don't see a, a, a Trump administration that's capable at the moment or seemingly capable. I'm not saying there isn't a desire, but they don't seem capable of of doing the thing that he was mandated to do when he was elected. And that raises a whole bunch of very serious questions as to why that's the case. So we'll have to see what happens. But I would I would say if he, if he manages to be successful in the midterms, gets through that, if we don't see something happening sort of December, January time or the remainder of November with any major significant changes, then we have to start to seriously question who is actually running the Trump administration because by that point, and, and there can't be any more excuses given for anybody not to actually deal with the, the major problems that are thwarting the, the ability of uh, whoever to drain the swamp, remove the cabal, deep state, whatever you want to call it. And no more excuses can be made anymore. You can give latitude for so long, but how long's Trump been in office? It's, it's getting, you know, two years in November. Well, effectively, okay, he was inaugurated in the January. Let's give him some latitude. But you're talking 20 months. And I, we're not seeing enough changes or anything actually happening. And how long do you keep giving someone the benefit of the doubt before you start to say, I mean, what's it going to happen? 12 months from now, we're still going to be going, oh, don't worry, there's a plan and it's all going to turn out fine. I mean, by the way, the, then the world's moved on. The world is moving on, and increasingly we're seeing the integration of Germany into the Eurasian axis, and nations in Europe are starting to move more and more, and to, to a lot, even the UK, for goodness sake. I mean, okay, they're never going to formulate any relations with Russia. I mean, in fact, they're foaming at the mouth more about the Russians than the US at the moment over the whole Scripple thing, but they are even trying to start to formulate stronger relations with China, but what are we seeing? We're not seeing the US developing any relations with any nation at all in any meaningful way. They're not signing trade deals. They're not signing cooperation agreements with anybody. And what, what are Russia and China and countless other nations doing? They're signing all these agreements. And yet we're supposed to believe China's this big bad ogre who's, who's you know, trying to take over the world with US hegemony Mark II. And the rest, 70% you know, of the world are looking at people making these comments going, sorry, are you serious? Because that's not our experience. No one, China and Russia aren't pointing a gun to anyone's head and telling them to do as they're told. Nations are working with them, and if agreements don't work out and they want to re-negotiate um, them, that's exactly what's happening. China's very cooperative, and Russia, for that matter, in the process. And what are we seeing is all the nations where the U.S. is attempting regime change and to cause um, economic implosion. I mean, Venezuela is an example. Maduro's no, is, has caused a lot of problems. There's no doubt about it. But why do you think the Chinese just gave um, the Venezuelans a $5 billion equivalent lifeline? Because they're trying to stabilize a country they know that's under threat. 
from US neocons. And it and it's and we've said all along China will backstop nations and prevent their collapse. The Russians are doing the same. They've helped with Venezuelan oil. I'm not defending Maduro by any stretch of the imagination, but the problems in Venezuela have been exacerbated multifold because of deliberate US in, intervention to collapse the economy and remove Maduro. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Paul, we're at the end of the show. Uh, your last uh, bit of comments, as well as giving out your social media and website once again. Go for it, Paul. I think the the only comment I would make is, I think from here on in, we have to have brutal honesty. That is the only way forward. We have to just be straight and honest about what's going on. No, I mean, I'm not a U.S. citizen, obviously, but I want the U.S. to be a successful vibrant nation and a great nation amongst equals that would be fantastic for the world it'd be fantastic for the u.s and, and the u.s people so that but i'm not going to sit here and pretend it's happening when it's not so people might not like what's said but it's reality and at the moment i'm not seeing anything that, that says to the contrary i'll be very pleased if sessions for example start to do the things we expect them to do we start to see the trump um administration take a different attitude towards foreign policy then i'll be extremely pleased with the developments we're seeing but at the moment we're not so we have to just be brutally honest and say this is reality and we've always been very fair to trump we've praised him and given him a uh, you know where it's due but equally we're going to be very critical and i'm sorry to say but i think i'm as critical as i have been of the trump administration since he was elected and he's not delivering at the moment on what he should be delivering Let's hope it changes because it has to change. And I agree there's a certain element of electioneering going on and he needs to ensure he wins the midterm. And I will say, and as much as I'm critical, Trump is really the US's last hope of salvaging the wreckage that is being caused by the cabal and by the neocons and all the you know, hordes of actors in the process. So that has to happen. And it... We may find that if he if he you know steamrollers the midterms, we might see a change in policy afterwards. But I would say, from my perspective, the next four months or so are pivotal and critical to the Trump administration and its future. We may be sat and talking in three or four months, going, "Wow, look at all the developments! This is fantastic. We're seeing real clear evidence of major changes that are going to be beneficial to the U.S. domestically and internationally." But if we get to that end within three or four months and we're still stymied by a Mueller investigation, by a lack of progress internally to, to drain the swamp or deal with the deep state cabal and the change of U.S. foreign policy, then we have to start to question, is it actually going to happen? And if it isn't, how is the world going to respond and react to that? Because the one thing is, if the neocons hijack the U.S., Russia and China are going to stand there and say, well, actually, okay, we'll, we'll just cut you some latitude, Trump. They're going to say, I'm terribly sorry. We're not cutting you any more latitude. We're not going to try and help you and, and resolve problems. And, and because why should they? And, you know, Trump had no reason to go after trade tariffs with China. It was foolish. It's backfiring. And the damage it's causing Trump in terms of businesses in the U.S. who are bitterly opposed to, to tariffs. And it's not making them much of the mainstream news in the U.S., but from people I've spoken to, there's trade and commerce sectors and industries and bodies who are absolutely furious because it's damaging their, their businesses. And the U.S. doesn't need its thriving economy, albeit as small as it is, to be damaged and and. And, you know, uh, effectively flattened by a Trump policy, which I feel is just trying to score some points and, and say to China, you know, oh, we, you're, you're, you know we're gonna, you're going to do what we want you to do. And of course, China was never going to do that, as we said. And that is very, very disappointing. But let's see what happens. But until I see a change of policy by then, I'm, I'm going to remain very skeptical and very concerned. And I think no one can criticize that viewpoint. I mean, there's no good living on hope and belief in something is going to happen until it happens. And, you know, the more people believe in something and it doesn't happen, in the end, they get more and more deflated in the process. It's better to be brutal and honest 
And, you know, and it's another thing. People shouldn't rest on their laurels. They need to make sure Trump wins the midterm because that if they don't, then I'm sorry, the problems are just going to get even greater. And it's become going to become virtually impossible for Trump to govern in the process, which ultimately is what the U.S. needs. And and because if they don't, I'd, I mean, what's going to happen if the Democrats get control? What 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 do we think is going to happen for the next two years? They'll just do everything to stymie and frustrate the Trump administration or make the Mueller investigation like a cakewalk. And we know the damage that's done to the Trump administration in the process. So sorry to sound so brutal, but and honest, but that's the only way we can be about things. And I agree wholeheartedly, man. We are facing a very grim reality if people don't wake up and take this country back. And that's just the bottom line. London Paul, thank you, sir, for being on. We look forward again uh, next week uh, for you to be on. And uh, with that being said, folks, again, subscribe to the channel, comment, like, and share, and check out com. Sign up to Paul's membership site and uh, make it happen for yourself. Enjoy it and uh, relish it because it's a lot of things happening. You need to keep abreast. SeriousReport.com. Take it away, CJ.